This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Good evening and welcome to tonight's Thomistic Institute event here at Rutgers. My name is Stephen Marciniak, president of our chapter. The Thomistic Institute is an apostolate of the Dominican House of Studies, which has many chapters in the U.S. and several others around the rest of the world as well. And it deals in bringing Catholic truth to the secular academic world. This event is also sponsored by the Rutgers Center for the Philosophy of, of Religion. Tonight's speaker is Father Michael Dodds, OP, Master of Sacred Theology, Professor of Philosophy and Systemic Theology at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He entered the Order of Preachers in 1970, was ordained in 1977, served as academic dean of the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, as well as Region of Studies and Vicar Provincial of the Western Dominican province. Tonight's topic is on whether the doctrines of the Trinity and divine simplicity are compatible or contradictory. As St. Thomas Aquinas points out, if there is a threefold personality assumed in God, since number always follows division, some division would have to be acknowledged in God, whereby the three may be distinguished from one another. Thus supreme simplicity will be lacking in God. If three agree in some respect and differ in another, composition must be present Let's be getting us a contradiction between these two doctrines. So now let us let Father Michael Dodds sort this all out for us. <laughs> well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much for the, uh, for the invitation to be with you here in some way, shape or fashion. Okay, so I'm gonna begin this talk with the first words of the Shema, the basic prayer of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, Deuteronomy. The words are an eloquent testimony to divine oneness. They're also the words that St. Thomas Aquinas uses to argue that divine oneness is an essential element of the Christian faith. He says, the first article of faith is that we believe in the unity of the divine essence according to Deuteronomy. Here, Israel, the Lord, our God, is one God. Any Christian confession of divine oneness, however, must also entail a profession of the unity of the three persons as revealed through Christ and the Holy Spirit. As Aquinas explains, just as the effect of the mission of the Son was to lead us to the Father, so the effect of the mission of the Holy Spirit is to lead the faithful to the Son. Now the son, since he is begotten wisdom, is truth itself. I am the way and the truth and the life. The effect of the Holy Spirit's mission is to make us sharers in the divine wisdom and knowers of the truth. The son, since he is the word, gives us instruction, but the Holy Spirit enables us to grasp it. Any discussion of divine nature necessarily involves a consideration of the unity and an account of the three divine persons. As Aquinas says, there are three things to be considered concerning the nature of God. First, the unity of the divine essence. Second, the trinity of persons. And third, the effects of divine power. There can be no contradiction between the oneness of God and the three divine persons. Of course, the oneness of the triune God is a mystery that exceeds our comprehension. 
Realizing this, a prudent speaker might just end this lecture at this point. Perhaps we could all just pray a glory be and call it quits for the evening. Yet, the theologian feels tugged to explore the mystery, not in order to somehow figure it out, but rather to plumb its steps. As St. Anselm says, theology is faith seeking understanding. Like members of the early Christian community, we begin with faith. Coming out of the tradition of Jewish monotheism, they were convinced that there is only one God. God alone saves and delivers his people. As God says through the prophet Isaiah, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no savior. Yet the early Christians believed that they were saved through the death and resurrection of Christ. His very name, Jesus, signifies his salvific mission. So we read in Matthew's gospel, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If God alone saves us from sin, and Jesus is the one who saves us from sin, then Jesus must be God. We hear this truth in the confession of the apostle Thomas when he encounters the risen Christ and exclaims, my Lord and my God. The early church believed implicitly that Jesus was truly God, the author of life, who by his death could bring life to the world. Yet the church emerged from the tradition of Jewish monotheism. The church community therefore struggled with how to say that Jesus is God when they believed that God is one. It's not surprising that people sometimes got things wrong as they struggled with this mystery. Their mistakes, however, were liable to lead others away from the true God who reveals himself in Christ. Such mistakes were known as heresies. One heresy was tritheism, the belief in three gods. The early church was surrounded by pagan religions that believed in many gods. So to some, it seemed that if the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, there must be three gods. This is a logical solution, but not an orthodox one, since the church had inherited the belief of the Old Testament that God is one. Another heresy was adoptionism. It taught that Jesus was not God, but merely a human being like any other who was sometime, somehow adopted by God and given a special share in God's life. It preserved monotheism, but it denied that Jesus was truly God. Yet another logical way of maintaining monotheism was to teach that the Son and the Holy Spirit are somehow less than God. They may be supernatural beings or demigods, but they are less than the Father, who alone is the true God. This teaching was known as subordinationism, since it argued that the Son and the Holy Spirit were somehow less than or subordinate to the Father. The trouble with subordinationism is that it can't explain how we're saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is less than God, how can he save us from our sins? since only God can forgive sins. If the Holy Spirit is less than God, how can he sanctify us and lead us 
into the fullness of divine life. In order to maintain both monotheism and the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, some taught that the Father is the only divine person, while the Son and the Holy Spirit are just different modes or appearances of the Father. As one human being might be called doctor in relation to her hospital staff and wife in relation to her husband and mommy in relation to her children, so the one divine person is called father in creating the world, son in redeeming it, and Holy Spirit in sanctifying it. This teaching was called modalism since it reduces the three divine persons to different modes or appearances of a single person. Modalism also satisfies the demands of logic, but doesn't fit the teaching of scripture. It reveals a real distinction between the divine persons. We see this in the words of Jesus as he speaks to the Pharisees in John's gospel and says, when you lift up the son of man, then you will realize that I am and that I do nothing on my own but I say only what the father taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what is pleasing to him. We see this also when Jesus prays in the garden of Gethsemane and says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And we can find it in the promise of the Holy Spirit when Jesus says, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. In order to affirm the truth of God's saving action in our history, we have to maintain that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there is only one God. This doctrine surpasses what we can understand. Still, the human mind tries to penetrate its steps, and this is the work of theology, of faith seeking understanding. Theology is one of the ways in which we seek to fulfill Christ's command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Wrestling with theological questions is also part of our service to God. As St. Thomas More says, God made the angels to show him splendor as he made animals for innocence and plants for their simplicity. But man he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind. In such service, however, we have to be careful not to imprison God within the confines of our mind or the limits of our logic. By meditating on the scriptures under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the church was gradually prepared to make an explicit formulation of its belief in the Trinity in a way that didn't fall into the errors of the heretics. That happened at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and was completed at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Now we're very familiar with the proceedings of those councils since we recite them each Sunday in the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, true God from true God. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. 
Even after formulating this explicit statement of our faith, however, the church still looks for analogies or models to help us penetrate the mystery of the Trinity. St. Augustine used the analogy of a mind remembering, knowing, and loving itself. Richard of St. Victor, a 12th century monk, used love itself as a model of the Trinity. He argues that since God is love, God must be threefold, since love implies the presence of a second equal to the first, as a lover implies a beloved. And it also implies a third with whom these two can share their love. We might also think of St. Patrick and his shamrock. As the three leaves are one plant, so in some way, the three persons are one God. In all of these ways, the church teaches the unity of the three person God. The doctrine of the Trinity does not contradict the truth of divine unity or oneness. The presence of three persons does not imply that God is somehow split into three parts, like three slices of a single pie. The oneness of God is expressed in the doctrine of divine simplicity, which teaches that in God, there is no division or composition. That doctrine is the hallmark, not just of Christianity, but of the whole classic, classical theistic tradition. As Edward Fazer points out when he says, this doctrine of divine simplicity is absolutely central to the classical theistic tradition and has been defined by thinkers as diverse as St. Athanasius, St. Augustine, St. Anselm, St. Thomas, Maimonides, Avicenna, and Averroes, to name just a few. It is affirmed in such councils of the Roman Catholic Church as the Fourth Lateran Council and Vatican Council I, which means that it is de fide, an absolutely binding, infallible, irreformable teaching of the church, denial of which amounts to heresy. So Edward Fazer. Well, we can explore the doctrine of divine simplicity briefly in the theology of Thomas Aquinas, and then consider how it fits with the doctrine of the Trinity. Divine simplicity is a tricky doctrine since, as Aquinas himself notes, it might at first seem counterintuitive. This is because among material things, the kinds of things we're most familiar with, the simple ones are often less perfect than the more complex ones. The simple one-celled amoeba, for instance, seems a less perfect and more primitive life form than more complex multicellular animals, such as dogs and cats and kangaroos. If complexity is a mark of perfection and God is the most perfect being, it might seem that God should be the most complex being. Aquinas points out, however, that it is only in the limited realm of material beings that whatever is simple is imperfect. To broaden our inquiry into the relationship between simplicity and perfection, we can employ a metaphysical analysis of things in terms of actuality and potentiality. Now here, actuality is associated with perfection and potentiality with 
imperfection. For instance, the person who can actually play the piano, we think is more perfect as a pianist than the one who merely has the potential for learning how to play. All material beings are composed of two principles, actuality and potentiality. A log, for instance, has a principle of actuality called a substantial form by which it actually has the perfection of existing as wood. The log also has a principle of potentiality called primary matter by which it has the possibility of becoming a different substance such as ash if you put it in the fireplace. When substantial form actualizes or perfects primary matter, the result is some actual substance, such as wood. Since material beings are composed of substantial form and primary matter, they always have both a principle of actuality or perfection and the principle of potentiality or imperfection. Since God is the most perfect being, God cannot be composed of both actuality and potentiality, but must rather be pure actuality or pure perfection. And the highest kind of actuality is the act of existence. Aquinas sees this supreme actuality reflected in the name that God gives himself in the book of Exodus. When Moses asks God for his name, God replies, I am who am. God is the absolutely simple, perfect, pure act of existence. In his treatise on divine simplicity in the Summa Theologica, Aquinas shows that every type of composition must be denied of God. Bodily composition is the first consideration. Since God has absolute primacy in being, and since actuality is prior to potentiality, it is impossible, he says, that in God there should be any potentiality, but everybody has potentiality insofar as it has matter. So we must deny that God is a body. Nor can God be composed of form and matter since matter implies potentiality, but God is pure actuality. Similarly, God cannot be composed of substance and accidents a substance is in some way actualized by its accidents, as an apple may be actualized by the accident or the property of having red color. The substance stands in relation to its accidents as potentiality to actuality. Since there is no potentiality in God, God cannot be composed of substance and accident. Likewise, God can't be composed of what Aquinas calls nature and suppositum. In every material being, we can distinguish the suppositum, that is the individual existing thing from its nature, that is the kind of thing that it is. No individual material being is identical with its nature. No individual human being, for instance, is identical with human nature or humanity as such. So, for instance, I can say, I am Michael Dodds, but I can't say, I am humanity. Since God is immaterial, however, God is identical with his nature. As Aquinas says, God must be his own Godhead, his own life, and whatever else is thus predicated of him. 
Finally, God is not composed of essence and existence. Essence accounts for what something is, such as a dog or a cat. The act of existence, or in Latin, esse, E-S-S-E, accounts for the fact that something is. Fido is a dog because of his essence, and Fido exists because of his act of existence, or essay. Although essence and existence are distinct in every creature, they're identical in God. To show this, Aquinas argues that when essence and existence are distinct, essence is actualized by existence. For instance, Fido's essence or dogness is actualized or made existent by his act of existence or essay. In such cases, essence is a principle of potentiality in relation to essay. Since there is no potentiality in God, his essence cannot be actualized by his essay and therefore cannot be distinct from his essay. Also, if God's essence were distinct from his essay, he would not have essay essentially, but through participation in some other being that does have it essentially. This cannot be the case, however, since God is the first being. So in God, essence and essay are the same. As Aquinas says, God is his own existence and not merely his own essence. God is thus shown to be both utterly simple, since there is no composition in him, and absolutely perfect, since God is essentially essay, and essay, as Aquinas says, is the act of all acts and the perfection of all perfections. Since essence and essay are the same in God, Aquinas calls God subsistent being itself, ipsum essay subsistence. Now that we've explored divine simplicity, we can consider the doctrine of simplicity in relation to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now to some thinkers, these two doctrines seem incompatible. The theologian John Cooper, for instance, maintains that divine simplicity, he says, implicitly denies the genuine distinction among the persons of the Trinity. So it's either or, either say God is simple or God is the Trinity, but not both. Christian Hughes finds, as he says, that the full strength account of divine simplicity, the one Aquinas presupposes and deploys in his metaphysics of the Trinity, describes a God who could not possibly be triune. Charles Hartshorn dismisses the whole notion of the Trinity in a brief comment. He says, the Trinity is supposed to meet the requirements of giving God an object of love by making the lover and the beloved identical and yet not identical, he continues. But whatever be the truth of this idea, whose meaning seems to me just as problematic as its truth, or once more, nonsense is only nonsense, however much you put a halo around it, it leaves the essential problem of divine love unsolved. Well, we've seen that in dealing with Trinitarian questions, theologians have been helped by using models or analogies for the Trinity, such as Augustine's analogy of the mind knowing and loving itself, or Patrick's analogy of the shamrock. 
to address the question of whether divine simplicity is compatible with the doctrine of the Trinity, will employ the model or analogy of subsistent relations developed by Thomas Aquinas. Before we can consider subsistent relations, however, we have to deal with the notion of relation itself. And to get at that notion, we'll begin with a banana. Hope you can all see the banana I'm holding up. I'm going to ask you a very simple question about it. If you're ready. Is the banana bigger or smaller? The question is a bit of a poser since you can't answer it just by looking at the banana. There are of course some things you can discover about it just by looking at it, even on your Zoom screen. Things like what color is it? it looks yellow. What shape is it? It's curved and so on. But you can't tell if it's bigger or smaller just by looking at it. I suppose the right answer to my question, if there is one, is to say that the question itself is unfair or better, but the question itself simply makes no sense. For when we talk about bigger and smaller, we have to know bigger or smaller than what? We need some point of reference or comparison. Is it bigger than a bread box? Is it smaller than a virus? Some reference is needed. That's because the question of whether something is bigger or smaller is a question about relation. And relation requires two terms. So although you can discern some properties of the banana, like its color or shape, just by looking at it, to discern the property of relation, you have to look both at the banana and at something else perhaps a second banana. Now, if you've got two bananas, you might be able to discern that one is bigger or smaller than the other. Well, before we go all together bananas here, uh, maybe we should just note that reference to another is essential to the very idea of relationship. Some things like color and shape are properties or accidents of substances, as yellow color and curved shape are properties of the banana. Accidents can change while the substance remains the same, as the color of the banana can change from green to yellow while the banana stays a banana. Substances have their own existence, but accidents depend on substances for their existence. So the yellow color and curved shape of the banana could not exist on their own apart from the banana. Accidents are therefore said to exist in or inhere in substances. In fact, reference to the substance in which it exists or inheres belongs to the essential meaning of accidents such as shape and color. Now this means that we cannot consider properties such as color and shape without reference to the substance in which those properties are found. The color and shape of the banana, for instance, are understood as aspects of the banana. We can discern properties of this sort simply by looking at the substance. 
as we do just by looking at the banana. Now, relation is also a property or accident of a substance. Like other accidents, therefore, relations exist in substances. So the property or, or relation of bigger and smaller exists in the banana. But relation differs from all other types of accidents in that its reference to the substance in which it exists is not part of its essential meaning. Relationship doesn't intrinsically refer to the substance in which it exists, but rather to something else. The banana, for instance, has the property of being bigger and smaller only in reference to something else. Reference to the substance in which it exists is not part of the essential meaning of the property of relation. Now, this means that we can consider the category of relation without having to refer to the substance in which that relationship exists. And that's going to be very handy for us in our discussion of the three persons of the Trinity in relation to the one divine essence. As Aquinas explains, other genera, sets as quality and quantity, in their strict and proper meaning, signify something inherent in a subject. But relation, in its own proper meaning, signifies only what refers to another. We can consider the property of relationship in two ways. First, we can look at the relationship as an accident inhering in a substance as bigger and smaller might inhere in the substance of the banana. Just as we consider color as an accident inhering in a substance, so we can consider the relational property of bigger or smaller as an accident inhering in a substance. In this way, we understand relationship as being in or esse in, being in a substance. The Latin term for being in is esse in, to be in. The reference of a relationship to the substance in which it is found is called its being in or essay in. But since the accident of relationship, unlike other accidents, also entails an inherent reference to another, there's a second way we can consider it. We look at it not only with reference to the substance in which it exists, it's essay in, but also with reference to something else towards which it is referred. This reference of the property of relation to something else is called its being toward or essay odd. We can refer to the essay odd of the category of relationship without reference to the substance in which the relationship exists, its essay in. So, Relation implies only a rapport to another in its proper meaning. So I can ask, am I bigger or am I smaller? Well, it depends on the object of reference. So one person may be bigger or smaller only in relationship to something else. So here I am, bigger than this person, smaller than that one. You can see that people in California are rather thin. Huh? 
So one person is bigger or smaller only in reference to something else, essay odd. But being bigger or smaller than something else is a real property of the person, essay in. Okay, so two aspects of relation. Relation primarily implies reference to another. This tree is smaller than that one. This tree is bigger than the other one. Unlike other accidents, relation does not imply in its primary meaning reference to the substance in which it inheres, as the color of the tree here indicates a certain modification of the substance that is colored. Like other accidents, relation is itself an accident that does inhere in a substance. So the two aspects of relation, essay in and essay on. With those distinctions in mind, we're ready to employ the notion of relationship to address our original question of whether the doctrine of the Trinity is compatible with divine simplicity. In our review of Aquinas's arguments for divine simplicity, we found that in God, there can be no composition, including the composition of substance and accident. Yet, we ascribe properties to God, which in a creature would be accidents. For instance, we say God is good. When we say that a banana is good, goodness is a property or accident inhering in the banana. In the creaturely realm, a substance can have many accidents. The banana, for instance, can be not only good, but also curved, yellow, sweet, and so on. Each of these accidents adds a certain actuality to the banana. In God, however, there can be no accidents or incidental actualities or modifications of the divine substance. Well, what does it mean then when we ascribe many attributes to God? as when we say, for instance, that God is good and wise and compassionate. In a creature, such attributes would imply many additional actualizations of the substance. But that can't be the case with God, since God is absolutely simple and not composed of substance and accidents. When we say that God is good or wise, therefore, we're not naming additional actualizations in God, but we're simply naming the one divine essence. As Aquinas explains, since divine simplicity excludes the composition of subject and accident, it follows that whatever is attributed to God is his essence itself. And so wisdom and power are the same in God because they are both in the divine essence. So when we say that God is wise or good or loving, we mean that God just is wisdom, God just is goodness, and God just is love. As Aquinas says, all that is in God is God. Well, now we can bring this discussion of divine simplicity together with what we've said about the category of relation to show that divine simplicity is compatible with the doctrine of the Trinity. So here you have a kind of diagram and I have to admit 
that this is a rather complicated diagram for a simple God. And it could also be a deceptive diagram if it makes it look like um, the divine essence pictured down here is something different from the divine persons, which are pictured here, the Father, here, the Son, and here, the Holy Spirit. But if we remember divine simplicity and the two aspects of relation as esse in and esse ad, I hope the diagram will help us to see both the distinction of the divine persons and the unity of the divine essence. Aquinas begins his discussion of the Trinity with the question of whether there is procession in God. And he finds the answer in St. John's Gospel where Jesus says, from God, I proceeded. As an analogy for such divine procession, Aquinas uses the processions of knowledge and love within the human intellect and will. How does that work? Well, as an idea or concept proceeds from a human intellect and yet remains imminently within it, so analogously, we can understand the Son or the divine word as proceeding from the Father and yet remaining imminently in the Father. Similarly, as an act of love proceeds from a human will and yet remains imminently within it, so we can understand the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the eternal love of the Father and the Son and yet remaining imminently within them. The procession of the divine word implies a real relationship between the word, who is the Son, and the speaker of the word, who is the Father. The relation of the Father to the Son is called paternity. And the opposite relation of the Son to the Father is called filiation. The relation of the Father and the Son as the common principle of the Holy Spirit is called spiration. And the relation of the Holy Spirit to that common principle is called procession. The three divine persons are distinguished by these relations. The Father is distinct from the Son as paternity is distinct from filiation. The Father and the Son are distinct from the Holy Spirit as spiration is distinct from procession. So the analogy of the relation allows us to distinguish the three divine persons according to the relationships of paternity, the father, filiation, the son, and procession, the Holy Spirit. But can the analogy of relation also allow us to maintain the oneness of God? Here we have to remember the peculiar feature of relation. We can consider relation either as an accident in a substance, being in, or essay in, or as a reference to another, the being toward, or essay on. We can consider each of the divine relations, paternity, filiation, and procession, both 
in terms of being toward or essay odd and in terms of being in, essay in. So for example, if we consider paternity, that is the relation of the father to the son as being toward or essay odd of the father to the son, the father is absolutely distinct from the son. So the being of the father essay odd towards the son and of the son towards the father shows they are distinct. Likewise, um, in terms of essay odd, the son is absolutely distinct from the father. And in terms of essay odd, the Holy Spirit is absolutely distinct from the father and the son. The Holy Spirit or possession as being towards father and the son is distinct from salvation as being towards the Holy Spirit. If we want to consider the three relations of paternity, affiliation, and procession, that is the three persons who are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with respect to the divine essence. So we've said the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct from each other. But what about their relationship to the divine essence? We don't want to say that they split the divine essence up into three parts. What is the uh, relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the divine essence? Well, then we have to refer not to this essay odd that distinguishes the three persons, but rather to essay in. We've seen, however, that because God is absolutely simple, when we consider any attribute such as goodness or wisdom in God, that attribute is not something added to the divine essence like an accident, but it just is the divine essence. So paternity with respect to the divine essence, just is the divine essence. Here we're considering paternity in, as essay in, it's being in. And here the father as essay in, the father in terms of being in the divine essence, simply is the divine essence. The way divine goodness simply is divine essence. And likewise, filiation, how do we understand it with respect to the divine essence? Well, we have to turn to this other aspect of relationship, not essay odd, but essay in. And it turns out the son simply is the divine essence. The way divine wisdom simply is the divine essence. So filiation simply is the divine essence, identical with the divine essence. And similarly, the relationship of the Holy Spirit as procession. How do we understand it in terms of the divine essence? We don't want to say that it's just one third of the divine essence. How do we understand it in relationship to the divine essence? Well, again, we have to use this other aspect of relationship, the essay in. And it turns out that with respect to essay in, the Holy Spirit simply is the divine essence. Each divine person is simply identical with the divine essence, though they are absolutely distinct from one another. Since the relations of paternity, filiation, and procession are identical with the divine essence, and the divine essence subsists, they are called subsistent relations in Aquinas' account of the Trinity. 
they subsist or exist with the existence of the divine essence. As Aquinas says, the several persons are the several subsisting relations, the relaciones subsistientes, really distinct from one another. Okay, well, we come to our conclusion that divine simplicity, far from being in conflict with the doctrine of the Trinity, is itself a central factor in allowing us to see that there is no conflict between the three divine persons and the unity of the divine essence. We've identified the three divine persons as the subsisting relations of paternity, the Father, filiation, the Son, and procession, the Holy Spirit. Considered with respect to one another, that is, as essayad, each relation is utterly distinct from its opposite term and indicates the distinction of the three divine persons. But when we consider these relations with respect to the divine essence, as essay in, we must understand them as we would any attribute that we predicate of God. Because of divine simplicity, however, every attribute of God just is the divine essence. So as God just is wisdom, goodness, and love, so are also God just is paternity, filiation, and procession. The three persons don't split the divine essence into thirds, but each is identical with the whole divine essence. In this way, God's utter simplicity is the key that allows us to see that there is no conflict or contradiction between the threeness of the divine persons and the oneness of the divine essence, while it preserves the mystery of the triune God, the mystery of that God whom we adore and contemplate. All hail, adored Trinity, all hail, eternal unity, O God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, ever one. Three persons praise we evermore, one only God our hearts adore. In thy sure mercy, ever kind, may we our strong protection find. O Trinity, O unity, be present as we worship thee, and with the song that angels sing, unite the hymns of praise we bring. Amen. Thank you. So that's my way of trying to explain Aquinas's account of the three persons and divine unity. And it's fascinating to me how that the category of relationship that he borrowed from Aristotle's categories can be so helpful as a model in showing the unity of the divine essence and the distinction of persons. So I thought if we'd like, we'd have a few questions or comments or. Yeah, if, if anybody has a question, feel free to unmute yourself and just ask it. Um, so when you're mentioning how just as God is wisdom, truth, and love, so he is the, each of the, um, divine persons is mm -hmm. the, 
the relationship you're talking about uh, of the Trinity and the simplicity, is it the same as, as saying with the wisdom, truth, and love that wisdom, truth, and love are separate from one another and yet God is each of them? Uh, no, because wisdom, truth, and love are, are not opposite relations the way filiation and paternity are or spiration and procession. So it's a, it's a different, I mean, it's, it sounds the same and in a way we're, we're saying the same thing. We're looking at the procession say of, of paternity. I mean, the um, relation of paternity analogous to divine wisdom. And we're saying that the way divine wisdom just is God or just is the divine essence. So paternity just is the divine essence. But on the other hand, wisdom doesn't have any relationship that's opposed to it or distinct from it. So it's quite different from the three relationships that are the three um, relations, yes, paternity, filiation, and procession that arise from the processions that are, that are within the divine nature. Thank you. You said that uh, the explanation you just gave preserved the mystery of God. Could you talk more about how that's evident? Because most of the time after an explanation, you hope there's not any mystery, right? That the questions have been answered. Yes, no, that's a good, very good point. It has to do with the nature of theology. There's one theologian who was exploring the relationship between God and suffering. And a lot of theologians try to figure that out. They say, well, maybe God isn't all powerful. God uh, would like to do something about suffering in the world. It really can't. And so on and so forth. But um, that does away with the idea of God's omnipotence. So how to deal with um, questions like that? Well, he says that the first um, obligation of a theologian in dealing with a mystery as to, is to speak in ways that do not diminish the mystery. So we talk about it, we try to penetrate its steps, but we're not really trying to solve it. You might say that the early heresies that I mentioned were trying to solve the mystery and you can solve it. You can just make the son and the Holy Spirit less than the father. They're not really God. And then there's no trouble. You got three persons and two of them are less than God. Uh, or you can say that they're just appearances of the one divine person of the father as in modalism. And again, you got a logical solution, but it doesn't fit the Christian faith. So the Christian theologian trying to speak about the Trinity doesn't want to solve the mystery or dissolve it away. He wants to speak in ways that bring out the mystery that allow us to contemplate it, to see its depths. So to speak in ways that don't diminish the mystery. without just bringing us into mystification either. Maybe you can define the word mystery because it seems like that you're just saying the word mystery without my seeing how it's still preserved because you just explained clearly Trinity and unity. <laughs> well, I've given you an analogy for it, that's all. Uh, the analogy is, goes beyond what we can understand. We can deal with relationships uh, among creatures. We know what that's all about. We transfer that term into the divine nature and we speak analogously about the divine nature. It's not as if we've entered the divine nature to see what's 
really, as it were, going on to see and comprehend how it is that the Son is related to the Father when they are the single one divine nature. That's what we don't see. That's, but that's what we want to preserve, that the Son is truly distinct from the Father because that seems to be what's revealed to us. And yet the Son and the Father are really God. So we're holding on to that, not as something that we comprehend, but as something that we believe. And in a way, I suppose what I'm doing is trying to defend the belief against those who might say that the whole thing is simply absurd. Well, there is a way to speak coherently about it, but our way of speaking coherently about it doesn't allow us to comprehend it, to understand it. It allows us just to talk analogously and say that, well, there is a way of talking about this that can show you that it's not a self-contradiction to say that God is one and three, but I'm not saying that I or anyone explains in what way God is both one and three. Uh, this question might, you might defer it to a biblical scholar. However, I hope you won't and take a stab at it. You know, and you mentioned before how Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and you referred that to his divinity and so forth. Um, is there any significance to the place? Is there any help to you in explaining that as part of the, the unity of God and all? Uh, is there any help to you in the context where he says those things? Like a famous example is the, the resuscitation of Lazarus, right? He says, the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's several other places. He doesn't say it everywhere. He says it only in certain places. Does mm -hmm. that, do those contexts help you at all in explaining those terms relative to the unity of, and simplicity of God? Well, I, I agree. Yes, the, the context certainly helps us to understand the different scriptural passages because the gospel writers were trying to tell us something about the faith and tell us something about Jesus in what they wrote. And of course, the Holy Spirit is also trying to tell us in revealing those things to us. So the context is certainly important and the whole work of the exegete to figure out the context of the passage and what its meaning was in terms of this the cultural situation, all of that is part of the um, meaning of the scripture. I suppose for the systematic theologian like myself, concerned with questions like um, the two natures of Jesus in the one, I mean the two, the two natures of Jesus, human and divine in the one divine person. Jesus speaks sometimes, and it seems to be a saying that's attributed to the human nature of Jesus, I thirst, or something like that, uh, on the literal level. It wouldn't be the logos, eternal logos, that is experiencing human thirst. But on the other hand, it's expressing a truth about the God as well. I mean, the scripture has different layers of meaning and depth, so that... Um, What's said on one level can have a resonance on another. Jesus, when one of the apostles asked Jesus, uh, show us the father that will be enough for us. Jesus responds, uh, how long have I been with you and you don't know me? The one who has seen me has seen the father. He came to reveal God to us, to reveal the father. So in seeing him, we see God, we see in him uh, 
his relationship eternally to the Father is somehow communicated through his human gestures and through his human sayings. But uh, sometimes he, he speaks, we could attribute the saying to the human nature, sometimes to the divine nature when he seems to know the future or to read people's hearts or things like that. So um, there is a clarification that can go on there in terms of the different sayings of the gospel. But in terms of the exegetical work, I think it's, uh, that would be for the scripture scholars to figure out uh, how do we get down to what these words and sayings meant in the context of that history. And that can be then an instrument for us to understand more deeply what they mean then also for us. Father, I have a question. Yes. Thank you for your wonderful presentation. I hope you understand my primitive English. I, I'm <laughs> from, from Chile. Oh, so, very good. <laughs> um, you mentioned in your talk something about divine attribute. And I, I have a question about that um, some theologians say that uh, all of the divine attributes like justice, uh, love, uh, wisdom are in, in, in reality just one perfection uh, in since God is simple, but for for us and for our, our knowledge, uh, it is there is a difference, uh, and, and we cannot say that they are strictly synonyms. So my question is, what is the Thomistic perspective? about it, I haven't studied Aquinas directly about it, only books from theology. Okay, well, that's a very, very good question. A lot of theologians ask that question. And um, how we don't want to say, as you say, and Aquinas also argues against thinking that uh, goodness and wisdom are synonyms in God. You know, they have distinct meanings. It, and why is that? Well, and we wouldn't want to say that they're just kind of generic thing in God, <laughs> just to turn them all into a kind of a blob or confuse them, you know? And it, it would then, attributing many things to God would seem to be just confusing God. Mm. If I said, uh, being hungry and being thirsty and me are the same thing, well, it doesn't, you know. There's a, well, there's a reason why we make these different statements. God's wisdom must be different from God's love, from God's compassion. All of those words have different meanings. So we have to distinguish um, the reality that we're signifying by these words would be the divine reality, God himself, the divine nature. And we point to that and we say that reality is absolutely simple. 
but we're using these words and we're limited to our human mode of understanding them, huh? our human um, mode of signifying when we say these words. So in that way, according to our understanding, they do mean distinct things. And we're telling, expressing the truth when we make those distinctions as best we can in our own way of thinking and talking, our mode of signifying the truth. But even as we say that, we'd also have to, theology is always a kind of correction. We say this and then we deny it, the way of uh, eminence and then the way of negation and so on. So we have to then qualify the statement and say, yes, what we're saying is true. Uh, God truly is wise and truly is good, compassionate. But the distinctions that are in our mind when we say that are not the distinctions in God because God is simple. So whatever God is, it is God is truly compassionate, good, not just a confusion of stuff, but truly is good, compassionate, uh, wise, and so on. The only way we can talk about that is with our human concepts in which those distinctions are needed. If we deny the distinction that there in our human concepts, then we don't have anything to say because that's the only way we can talk is with our human mode of thinking and our human concepts. So I guess it's kind of the discipline of recognizing the limits of our human mode of understanding. And we don't want to say um, that we can understand God inside out, no. We can only understand according to our limited human intellect. And we have to then stick with what we know by our human knowledge. And in our human way of knowing, these concepts, these attributes are distinct. So in our human way of thinking, we can't meld them together and say, no, they're all the same, as if they were just a big blob, which is the only way we could think of it in our way of knowing. We have to maintain their distinction. And yet at the same time, realize that God isn't made up of numerous different properties of goodness, of wisdom, et cetera, the way we are. All of those things are united in the one God in a way, of course, that goes beyond what we can, we can comprehend. But in saying that they are one in God, we don't want to say that they're one in God the way they'd be one in our mind if we turn them all into synonyms. Thank you, Father. Okay. So, Father, um, I have a question in regards to someone like Karen Kilby or Dennis Turner, who think that Aquinas is often read in a way that seems to make him less apathetic. We want to say that he has a very negative approach, like you said before, that we can only say what God is not. And so, for Kilby in particular, she kind of I think mostly in reference to someone like uh, Matthew Levering, she points out that, you know, for Aquinas, he says these things, but he seems to just be setting linguistic boundaries of what we can't say. Um, and so when he talks about, you know, the, the persons, it gives us a way to have kind of what's orthodox and what's not in technical language and say that it's not incoherent, maybe, but that we really don't know what we're talking about. So like, we don't know what a divine procession is because we have no idea what a procession would be without any kind of, you know, temporality and we don't know what a subsistent relation would be like we don't because the persons aren't they don't have relations they are relations right god the father is paternity we don't know what that would be like and then we also don't know how essay in and essay add you know how the relations actually relate to the divine essence because for us every 
kind of relation is an accident, even if it's not illogical. So how, how would you respond to something like that? Would you agree with it, disagree? Well, I think I'd go back to, um, I'd start with the Aquinas that so we know what God is not rather than what God is, so the apophatic is there. But then Aquinas uh, came across others who said that all our God talk is merely uh, reducing to God is the, when we say God is good, God is the cause of goodness or the triumph of the way of negation, that when we say um, God is good, we mean God is not bad, you know? So all we do is, everything is reduced to the way of negation, I think something like uh, Maimonides did. So he is following Pseudo-Dionysius, allowing for also a way of eminence, where we can also say something true about God, you know? So, okay, well then, what does it mean when we say something true about God? So when we say God is good, we don't just mean God is not bad. And we don't just mean God is uh, the cause of goodness in the world. We mean that God as such is good. Well, how can we mean that? We're, we're human beings and we have to do our way of meaning things in a human way. Well, here we go back, I think, to this distinction between the uh, the thing signified and the mode of signifying. So in terms of the thing signified when we speak in the way of eminence and say God is good, it's, uh, it's true. You know, that what, but there, what it means is what we're pointing out, we're pointing truly to God when we say God is good, but we don't comprehend divine goodness. So we say, in terms of the reality that's signified by the word good, it signifies God. In terms of the mode of signifying, which is always limited to our home human mode of understanding and so on and so forth, well, then we say, no, that we have to deny that. God isn't good in the way that we can understand, but God is good in what the way of evidence gives us in a super abundant, califragilistic, unbelievable, incredible way. But that's true, that God is good in that sense. And it's true when we say it in that sense. Huh? Uh, so I, th I think those three ways go together. You know, don't reduce it down to just the way of causality or to the way of negation. And be cautious about the way of eminence because it doesn't mean that now you've got it. No, you've got it in some ways. You've got it as a reality that you can speak truly. You can speak the truth about God. I'd say, but you just don't understand what you're saying when you say the truth. <laughs> you know that you're speaking truly. What your statement signifies is true. You're pointing to the truth, the thing signified. But you're always limited to your human mode of signifying. And you can't escape that. And you always have to say, well, but it's not in the way that humans can talk about it. It's beyond that but still we can keep on talking. Uh, Father, doesn't that limitation they were putting um, would make nonsense of God loving us. So when God says, I love you, and I say, I love God, those have to have something in common or else God loves me doesn't mean anything. You know, if it can, if it doesn't, it, it, somehow they have to be the same so that when I say God loves me and I love God, I know what that means. When God yeah. uses it of himself, it has to mean the same thing somehow. 
Yes, I think that's uh, what we're comfortable with is univocal language. Words have to have the same meaning in every context. And we don't want the words to be equivocal as if they had nothing to do with each other, like talk about the bark of a tree and the bark of a dog. It can't be that when we say it was the word love of God and our love that we know among human beings, but they can't be univocal either. They can't be the same thing because our love is always limited and imperfect. So it can't be a univocal meaning. So it's an analogous meaning. There's some, there's some reflection of the divine love in our love because we're created by God. And uh, so we can use those terms uh, and use them truly, but we can't use them recklessly. We have to always say, yes, we're using them analogously. It's not entirely the same, but there is a basic, what would I say? Well, more, Aquinas would say they're more unlike than alike, but there is a likeness. The creature is like the creator, so words that we use of the creature are in some ways like the creator. So the goodness we find in the creature ontologically is like in some way the goodness of God. So the word that we use to describe that goodness in creature when we say Joe is good is somehow like what we say about God when we say God is good. There is a likeness, but it's always analogous. It's not univocal. They don't mean exactly the same thing, but they certainly share a meaning, so they're not meaningless. We can continue to talk. Um, to that point, though, with, with language, I, I do have one kind of tangentially related. In terms of language and models, because you talked about models before, in the 20th century in particular, um, the word person came under attack by both Protestants and Catholics, most notably Karl Barth, and then um, uh, Karl Rahner in the Catholic tradition. And in some sense, you know, they, there might be some issues with their theology, putting them together with Thomas, but they don't seem completely off base with Thomas because it doesn't take long into his theology where he kind of shows this pietas to using personas or persons, but pretty quickly describes the persons as subsistent relations, which is not anything like what, even in his time, they would have thought a person is and even farther removed than how we use that word today. So is there something wrong with the Barth's mode of being or Rahner's, you know, three distinct manners of subsistence? Were they completely wrong to kind of point out that maybe at least using those when technically describing it to somebody could be useful, even if we use persons in our creedal understanding, you know, it's a person, but then it's not anything like what we think of in our modern context, especially in the English. Yes, yes. I think they were both steering away from this kind of a new meaning that came about to person in, in modern times it wasn't there when Boethius was coming up with his definition of person as a individual substance of a rational nature. Uh, suddenly, not suddenly, but eventually person came to mean a center of consciousness. Well, in God, we don't want to say there are three centers of consciousness distinct from each other. That would be three gods, you know. The divine knowing is one divine willing is one. This is an essential attribute of God. And yet it is the father willing, the son willing, and the spirit willing, each according to their own way, you could say, of being God. So there, as soon as you introduce way, sounds like mode of being. So I think it's inescapable to talk to at certain points about divine modes of being. The, you turn into, run into Sibelianism if you say, well, that's it, you know, 
they're simply three different modes of being. Uh, and as far as, um, yeah, so to try to find uh, new ways to talk about it, I think Rahner had his own way of experimenting with that, but it says at one point, he says, I think in Sacramento Muni, that, the, that it's the, um, the tradition has this so long established the word person that it's hard to figure out how you would be able to find a substitute word for that within a kind of a theological discussion. So it'd be kind of just having a caution in using the word person that doesn't mean what we mean now. Even person today often means kind of a temporal being also a part of being a human being is to be in time. Well, that can't be the meaning when you apply the term to God. So uh, I, I suppose the alternative would be to have a, use the term and then kind of correct it, say person, three persons, but then kind of correct that by the by, I don't mean this, three consciousnesses. Uh, and I think that's in some ways the way that Bronner went, but trying to find um, a way of speaking, especially when these are the kind of formulations of the church and yet the language itself has shifted so that those formulations without some qualification could mean kind of the opposite of what you want them to mean. You could end up talking about three gods and that's not what you want to say. You want to say person in the sense of a subsistence or hypostasis or something like that. Do we have any other questions? Right, that looks like a no. Um, <laughs> okay. okay. Well, uh, I guess to wrap this up, Father, uh, may we have your blessing. Surely. So, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together to discuss the mystery of your divine life. We ask you to bless us all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.